morning to have a funeral for Jesus. Though you might think so if you went to some churches. Our Savior's alive, amen? John chapter 13, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 793. Page 793, John chapter 13. Uh, for uh, several months now, on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been talking about things that Jesus said exclusively to his disciples. Uh, on occasion, I've broken away from that. Last Sunday morning, we did that, and I talked to you about building a Christian home in a secular world, and I hope that was an encouragement and a challenge to everyone here. Uh, I thank God that even though a lot of sometimes we look around and feel like everything is falling apart, I, I want to remind you there are dots of light everywhere. Christian people building Christian homes. By the way, thank God that that Roe versus Wade was reversed the other day. Uh, to the 12, to uh, 
is how the Old Testament commandments impact and apply to us today because we live in the church age under grace rather than under the law of Moses uh, like the Jews did prior to uh, Jesus Christ. Now, that's a great question. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to answer that this morning other than to say this. None of us like to be commanded to do anything. I mean, have you ever really thought about this? Uh, our creator is a perfect leader. And yet we don't like to obey his commandments. In fact, probably all of us, if we would be honest, we've had human leaders who were within their boundaries of rightful authority who commanded us to do something that was actually reasonable and we still bristle at it. Have you ever thought that maybe the problem isn't the person giving the commandment, the problem is us? I'm told there are 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. I mean, think about that. People go on and on about the law of Moses being able to be broken down into 613 commandments. I'm told there's 1,050 in the New Testament. Now, I saw the list of them, and as best as I could tell, I didn't read them all. Man, they did all seem like things that are commanded to us in the New Testament. I didn't check to see how many duplicates. I don't know whether there's really 1,050 or 917. And that doesn't really matter. As Christians, we need to understand that though we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, God has commandments for us too. I mean, this room and in our culture, having a family pet is very common. In fact, pet stores and pet supply companies, they make a lot of money because our pets, in many cases, as time goes on, they kind of become like a family member. Uh, there's a story told about a family that a dog they had for many years uh, became, as is so often the case, one of the family. And unfortunately, when the children let the gate open, the dog ran away. They looked and looked. A lot of tears were shed. The children then urged the parents to offer a reward and allow them to put out signs. And so they put out a sign, and the sign said, uh, reward $50 for the return of our family dog. He's a crippled left front paw. He's blind in his right eye. His tail has a bend where it was broken, and he was recently neutered. Answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> love comes from the heart of one who loves and has very little or nothing to do with the beauty of the recipient. If you're able to stand, if you would stand this morning, please, in honor of God's word, tell my thought tonight. What does Jesus have to this morning? What does Jesus have to say to his disciples? Here's the title. I have a new commandment for you. I have a new commandment for you. John chapter 13, we begin verse 34. Jesus speaking here to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Thank you, Mark Stephen. It was Christ's last night before his passion 
Anybody who knows it's their last day on earth uses those last hours very carefully. On that last night, Jesus, knowing it was his last hours, he chose to spend them with his closest disciples before being taken by the Jews and wrongly tried. If you ever stop to think about that, he could have spent his last hours with his biological family. He had four half-brothers, at least two half-sisters. His mother was still alive. He could have spent that time with them, but he didn't. He could have spent his last hours telling as many people as possible how to stay out of hell. He could have went everywhere to people who had not yet believed and explained to them how he was the Christ and that he lived a sinless life and that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. He didn't do that either. He could have spent his last hours with all of his disciples. There were at least 500. Some of them were very dedicated. Listen, the apostles were not the only dedicated disciples. I mean, some other disciples who are named in the New Testament, they were very dedicated disciples. And of course, some were casual disciples, just like some disciples today. But he could have spent the time with all of them. He didn't do that either. He chose to spend his last hours with the apostles. But though he knew it was his last hours, they had no idea that he would soon suffer and die at Calvary. I wonder if they'd have known what was next. If they would have behaved differently, if they would have asked different questions, if they would have interacted with one another or with Jesus differently had they known this was their last opportunity. But they didn't know, and so to them, this seemed like any other night with Jesus, Jesus instructing them, Jesus interacting with them. And when we think about this, it is good for us just to simply keep in mind that none of us know how long we'll be here. None of us know how long those in the circle of our life will be in the circle of our life. That that ought to impact us and cause us to be careful how far we let our relationships deteriorate. Over the years, I've always been amazed at family members who no longer purposely speak with one another. Fact of the matter is, Jesus had a lot to say to them that night. Some were reminders, and others were things that were new to the apostles. In fact, in our text, one of the new things Jesus wanted to tell them was a new commandment. We read it in verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Understand this morning that this is not a new commandment because loving one another was new. By the way, anybody who thinks that it was okay in the Old Testament to hate people uh, doesn't understand God. In fact, anybody with any knowledge of the Old Testament knows that Jesus himself taught that the second greatest commandment of the 613 commandments between Genesis and the end of the book of Deuteronomy was Leviticus 19.18, which says that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love has been a plan, or a part of the plan of our creator from the Garden of Eden and all through the Mosaic Law and on into the New Testament. You see, it was nothing new to love. What was new is the standard to which we are to love. Amen. 
See, the Old Testament standard was to love our neighbor as ourselves. By the way, that presumes that a certain amount of self-respect and self-love is a good thing. It was the Old Testament standard of how you love your neighbor. And, and by the way, anybody who tells you that uh, you are supposed to consider yourself to be a worthless piece of trash and having no value in order to please God, they don't know anything about God. You have great value to God regardless of how this world views the value of your life. See, the Old Testament standard was to love our neighbor as ourselves. The New Testament standard was to love like Christ loved his disciples. You, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Have you ever really thought about this? It was impossible to have that standard until people could watch how Jesus loved. Yeah. By the way, if anybody knew how Jesus loved them, it would have been the apostles who were basically for three to three and a half years been with him every day of the week, and they watched how he interacted with everyone. They watched how he interacted with his family. They watched how he interacted with his friends. He, they watched how he interacted with his enemies. They watched everything in the morning when he was weary, in the evening when he had a tough so if anybody understood what it meant to love each other like Christ loved them, it was the apostles. In fact, the love of Christ moved him to leave the comfort of heaven to be born as a baby. The love of Christ moved him to endure the hatred of those who didn't like him or his message. The love of Christ moved him to set his face like a flint to the cross, knowing the terrible cost personally that involved. The love of Christ motivated him to patiently be faithful to his disciples, despite their immaturity, selfishness, and pride. The love of Christ moved him to tell people the truth they needed to hear, instead of telling them, what they wanted to hear. The love of Christ moved him to suffer naked on a criminal's cross on a skull-shaped hill outside of Jerusalem. To suffer and die for your sins and mine. In fact, this morning, if you think it was the nails that held him to the cross or the Roman guard that forced him to stay, stay there, you know nothing of the omnipotence of God. It was the love of God in Christ toward us that kept him on that cross. The disciples had watched how he responded to them when they were immature, when they were tired and cranky, when they disagreed with one another, when they proudly debated over who among them would be greatest. They watched how he responded to them when they sinned in small and private ways. They watched how he responded to them when they sinned in big and public ways. They heard and felt his clear personal rebuke at times. They knew what it was like to look over at him and see him smile at them. They knew what it felt like to have him place their hand on their shoulder when it was a moment when they were troubled or disturbed or afraid. They knew what it was like to 
love like Christ loved. They had watched him love. In fact, they not only heard what he said, they heard how he said it. Though he was the creator, there was no condescension when he taught them. Though he lived sinlessly with perfection, he never looked down on their human weaknesses and flaws. Though he always had answers and knew the truth, he never mocked their ignorance. They had no doubt that he loved them. They, by the grace of God, had experienced what it was like to be loved by other people, but they, uniquely and more so than any human beings who were involved in the life and ministry of Jesus, they knew how Jesus loved them. And imagine the significance and the weight of Him saying to them that night, I want you to love one another like I've loved you. But that wasn't all that would have grasped their attention because he also, in addition to this new standard with this new commandment, he identified this as being the easiest way for people to recognize them as his disciples. In verse 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Have you ever really thought about that? The apostles had so much of the power of the Holy Spirit in their life to bear witness to their message that they did great miracles, but that was not their identifying mark. The apostles understood truth and the doctrine that Jesus had taught them to such a degree that until the New Testament was written, they themselves and what they taught was the standard for what was truth. And yet... That, too, was not the first mark of them being his disciples. (laughs) They have suffered greatly for their faith in Christ as Messiah, for their belief that he was the only way to eternal life, and for preaching that message. They suffered greatly for that. But that was not the great mark of their discipleship. Anyone who came to one of their assemblies, anyone who visited one of their churches should have immediately been struck by the love that they had one for another as disciples of Jesus. By the way, I hope that anyone who attends Bible Baptist Church a couple of times are struck by the way we love one another. I hope Bible Baptist Church is characterized by truth. Listen, we live in a day of confusion, a day when false doctrine and uh, all kinds of false beliefs uh, abound in the Christian community. I hope sound doctrine is always clearly trumpeted from this pulpit when it comes to thus saith the Lord. I hope Bible Baptist Church is characterized by evangelism. I hope anybody that comes here and knows anything about us sees our passion to get the gospel to the world, sees our passion to have people saved and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than anything, I don't want Bible Baptist Church to be characterized by our sincere effort to follow and obey Christ, so that matters. I want more than anything in my prayer is that we would be characterized most by the fact that we love one another. 
According to Jesus Himself, it's our love for one another that He most wants others to see when they come into this assembly. Listen, I I understand truth, evangelism, sacrificial effort, sound doctrine. I, I understand that's all a part of the work of Christ. I get it. But it is our love for one another that ought to be obvious to anyone paying attention. Amen? And so what I'd like to do this morning is preach for a minute or two on some observations and applications of Christ's new commandment to his disciples. Please first go in your Bible to Romans. Love to hear pages turn. I wouldn't even attend a church where people didn't bring their Bibles by and large. Listen, if they don't feel like they need to bring their Bible, what in the world's the purpose of going? You want to know how worldly a church is? Turn all the lights to be a normal white light, take all the music away, and see if the preaching and teaching of the scriptures brings the same crowd. If you really want to know. By the way, I think you'd show up again. We're all out of purple lights. Some observations. By the way, I'm not having some cow about purple lights, but I'm not getting them, amen. Some observations and applications of Christ's new commandment. Here's number one. Jesus Christ loves us so much he died for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus Christ loves us so much that he died for us while we were yet sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Now notice the contrast. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. But notice in verse 7, some people, on occasion, scarcely, someone will die for someone they consider to be righteous. Notice then, it says, yet peradventure, for a good man, someone even dare to die. In other words, if somebody thinks someone else is good, they might die for him. By the way, happens in the military. Happens all the time among law enforcement. Notice the contrast in verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, if you and I are to love one another like Christ loved us, we must begin by considering how much Christ loved us. Have you ever thought about all the things love has motivated people to do? People have left family and friends because they loved someone and wanted to be where they were. My wife isn't here this morning. She's stuck working, so I can say, you know what? The reason my wife moved to Cincinnati was her love for me. I know better than to say, hey, choose between me and your family. Choose me between me and your dog. So no, I'm not going to ask that question. I can't stand the answer. People for love have done a lot. People have, for love of country and love of freedom, risked and sometimes sacrificed their lives. 
People have given up promising careers. People have sacrificed all sorts of things because they loved someone. And though, though all of those things are noble, all of those are a wonderful kind of love, none of those compare to the love Jesus Christ had for us because in verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, He died for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till you took a hundred old ladies across the street. He didn't wait for you to tithe five years straight. He didn't wait for you to be in church every week. He died for you while you are yet a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And the sinless Savior died on the cross to pay our wages because He loved us. In fact, I have no doubt there are quite a lot of people here this morning, if the chips were down, you'd die to save a family member. Amen. I, I hate to ever be bold because you never know what kind of cowardice might come out of my heart. But I would hope if the chips were down, I'd die for my wife, for our boys, for their wives, for our grandkids, for some of you. I'd hope. But understand that none of us love the ungodly enough to die for them. I mean, understand the difference in our love and the love of Christ. See, see the ungodly of our world, in many cases, they're murderers, they're child abusers, they're molesters, they're evil, they're terrible people, and yet Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners. That's how God commendeth His love toward us. Have you ever paused to consider how much Jesus Christ loves you. Say, so Brother Wally, I can't see it because of all the things that have happened in my life. And what I would say to you is you need to look back further than the dot on the timeline of your life and see a skull-shaped hill outside of Jerusalem where someone who left the glory of heaven for the dusty roads of earth, who left the praise and adoration of angels to be hated and mocked, and see him hanging naked between two criminals, and then you'll see the love of God for you. Amen. I say with complete confidence to everyone here, God loves you. And Christ died for your sins because he loves you. In fact, if you think you're going to somehow make it to heaven after rejecting the loving sacrifice of Christ, you're kidding yourself. This morning, have you ever really humbled yourself to come to Jesus? I'm not asking you if you prayed some prayer when you were eight and it had no impact on your life. I'm asking you, is Christ in your life? If Christ is in your life, there will be no mistake about the fact He lives in you. How could God be in your heart and you not know? But to you this morning, I say, if you've never cried out to God for mercy through Jesus Christ, you can do that this morning. 
Because Christ loved you and died for you. You can come to Jesus Christ. You can call upon His name. You can humble yourself to believe and receive Him. And this very moment, He would come into your heart. He would forgive your sins. He'd cause you to be born again. You would become one of the children of God. And your eternal destination would be forever changed. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. And he loves you anyway while you are yet a sinner. Though he hates sin, Christ Jesus loves sinners of every sort. Which gets us to our second thing. Number two, our love for one another is the best demonstration of the fact that we belong to Jesus. We not like this, but this is what Jesus said. Probably most of us here would prefer that something else demonstrate the fact that we belong to Jesus. But it was Jesus who said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Our love one for another as believers in Jesus demonstrates to everyone we're Christ's disciples. Understand, this is different from love for our biological family. That is a wonderful thing, and I do believe that love and faith begin in our home. But understand that you do not have to be saved to love your biological family. Every human being was made in the image of our loving Creator. God gave a conscience to every human being, and that conscience bears witness to every human being that they ought to love their family. By the way, I hope you love your family. But it takes a different and more difficult kind of love to demonstrate the fact that we belong to Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, do you love the people of God? If you're a part of Bible Baptist Church, do you love the people of God here? Like I say, there's probably a lot of other things we'd prefer our church and our loyalty to Christ be judged on. Some of us would like our discipleship to be most shown by our evangelism, our fervor to get the gospel out. Some would like our discipleship to be most shown by our sound doctrine, our knowledge of and allegiance to biblical truth. Some of us would like our discipleship to be most shown by giving our willingness to serve in a ministry. Some of us would like our discipleship to be most shown by how hard we work at our job or by the kind of citizen we are in the community. And there are certainly many aspects to being a follower of Jesus, but the aspect of being a follower of Jesus that most reflects Him and most reflects the fact that we belong to Him is our love one for another. Have you ever thought about how hard that is? You know, we're all very different. Different ages, different backgrounds. But we have a common faith in Jesus Christ in the Bible. We have a, we're at a lot of different places in our spiritual walk. In fact, the spiritual maturity of the people of this room is all the way from just recently saved to people who have been a disciple for decades, from people who have passion for Christ to people who are as lukewarm as lukewarm can be in their faith. 
but we have a common faith in Jesus and belief in the Bible. Have you ever thought about how many different personality types there are in this room? How much different we are gifted naturally and gifted spiritually, and yet we have a common faith in Jesus and the Bible. We enjoy so many different things. It's amazing to me that everybody is not a Duke basketball fan. And though John Shire to me was a whiner as a player, he's now the coach. I mean, I like to fish. I like the wilderness. Some, some of you, uh, the wilderness is a four-star motel. We, we, we have so much variety among us. Our, our common ground it is not all these things we have in common. Our common ground is our faith in Jesus. Our common ground is we believe the Bible. And that common ground is enough to cause you and I, despite all these differences, to have this kind of unity and to have this kind of love for another that causes Jesus to look down and say, that's my disciples right there. It's the, that kind of thing that causes causes someone to walk in here and say, you know what? Those people seem to like each other. It is that that is the root of any kind of real warmth that is in the body of Christ. And I ask again, do you love the people of God? Do you have a special love for the people of God here? By the way, I know a lot of people don't. So how do you know? By how much interest you take. By what you choose when you have a choice to be with the people of God here or go somewhere else. By the way, because I love my wife, whenever I have a choice, I like to be with her. See, none of us will ever come close to obeying this commandment to love God's people without Christ in our life helping us. Part of the fruit of the Spirit of God, Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Love is first. A disciple of Jesus yielded to the Spirit of God has the Spirit of God producing love in their heart for one another. Do you love the people of God? Are you part of why someone might come here and conclude that we love one another? If everyone here had your love for the other people here, would anyone come in here and conclude that we love one another? Do you reflect the warmth of Christ to others? Do you make any effort to love and consider those outside your personal circle? Have you been here more than six months and still expect everyone to come to you? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Which gets us to our third thing. Please go in your Bible. Lastly, to 1 John chapter 3. 
At first, Jesus loves us so much he died for us while we were yet sinners. I said, secondly, our love for one another is what best demonstrates the fact that we belong to Jesus. And here's number three. True love is demonstrated more by our action than our words. True love is demonstrated more by our action than by our words. 1 John chapter 3, notice what it says in verse 18. My little children, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. <laughs> our love is, manifest, <laughs> is manifested in deed and in truth. Few words have lost their meaning and become more twisted like the word love. In our culture, love has been reduced to physical attraction or a feeling in our heart. And I don't debate that feeling in our heart is at times a part of love, but understand that if that feeling in our heart is actually love, then it will be manifested in deed and in truth. Please don't sit here and say you love someone and then talk badly behind their back or lie to them. If you say you love, don't sit here and say you love someone when it doesn't show up in your actions. Yes, love does at times include a feeling, but true love is more than a feeling. It is the way we act, the things we do, the things we say. It is in deed and in truth. In fact, that is not just true towards people. It's true towards God. Look at 1 John 5, verse 3. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. If, if someone loves God, there will be a keeping of His commandments. Keeping is higher than obedience. Keeping includes obedience. But when you keep something, you guard it. You value it. You treasure it. You make sure it's safe. And those who have a true love for God keep His commandments because love is more than something we say. It is a deed. Amen. Notice, love is an action word when it comes to people. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. 1 John 3 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God. So, okay, how do we see that God loves us? How do we perceive His love? Because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, here's the great question. What produces a better life? Living for ourselves, that's what our world does, or laying down our life for Christ's sake for those we love. That, that's a question. The, the question is not, if you live for yourself, do you ever have any fun or joy? I mean, the answer to that is obvious, yes. The question is, which produces a better life? Which produces a better marriage? Which produces a more secure home? Which produces the things that people need most? By the way, by and large, this week, most of the children that we invest in, like Josh prayed er earlier uh, today, you, you know, they don't bring anything to the church. They're not going to bring any money. They're not going to do any ministry. In the vast majority of their cases, they're not even going to show up. So why do it? 
Because it's the love of God. People perceive our love when we lay down our life. I, I want to urge every husband here, your wife ought to feel like you would lay down your life for her. Your children ought to feel like, wow, my mom or dad would die for me if they needed to. You really want to impact people for Christ? Have them genuinely include, conclude there's somebody who's laying down their life for me. And this is the way the disciples of Jesus are recognized. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you'd quietly stand.